Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Time for the Hillsdale Dialogue and Experiment this week. Once a week, I sit down with Dr. Larian, the president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues on the faculty at Hillsdale, hillsdale.edu, and we conduct a conversation either about the Week in Review or about one of the great works or essays of English uh, Western uh, heritage and literature. Uh, But Dr. Arn has never before been awake at 7.30. And so we've actually never tried this. And uh, it seems to me that we have tried 8 o'clock and we keep pushing it back and we keep turning him from his slumbers earlier until we find that he'll be broken at some point. Dr. Arn, are you with us? I am. I'm taking relief factor, Hugh. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good because I'm going to plug it at the end of the segment. Well, you need it. Now, I've got to tell you, you sent me Election Memories, a 1931 essay by Winston Churchill, and I just began a conversation with John Dickerson of Face the Nation by reading him a wonderful paragraph, uh, which amused him endlessly. I wish to read it to you. Of course, there are the rowdy meetings. These are a great relief. You have not got to make the same old speech. Here you have excited crowd, greed-eyed opponents, their jaws twitching with fury, shouting interruptions, hollowing, bellowing insults of every kind, anything they can think of that will hurt your feelings, any charge they can make against your consistency or public record, or sometimes, I'm sorry to say, against your personal character, and loud jeers and scoffs arising now on all sides, and every kind of nasty question carefully thought out and sent up to the chair by vehement-looking pasty use or young short-haired women of bulldog appearance. An ordeal? Certainly. But still, these sorts of meetings make themselves. You've not got to worry beforehand to prepare a speech. A few of the main slogans are quite enough to start with. The rest is... Not silence, but how your supporters enjoy it. Dickerson got a good kick out of that, Dr. Arn. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> and, you know, he goes on from there, Hugh, to give tips. So yes. to, the, to, the, to the debating candidates, here are Churchill's tips. One, grin. <laughs> <laughs> Two, be natural. Three, have a sense of detachment, remembering, he says, Nothing is so ludicrous as a large number of good people in a frantic state. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't this just a tonic? It is. It is a tonic. And the last one is never lose your temper. I mean, you know, Marco Rubio could have read this. Yep. Yep. Uh, he, He also writes about what he calls a good instance of the ups and downs of politics. Because in this essay, which was written in 1931, he's been both up and he's been both down. King, The king wrote him at one time. King Edward wrote him, said, "You what is, I got to find that phrase. He said, you must be walking on clouds or something like that. He said, King Edward, uh, you must have thought I walked on clouds, I stood on thrones. And so he won big wins. He suffered crushing defeats, but he had a detachment about it. Oh, yeah. He, uh, he didn't like it. He says that in the essay. And it's buried in the essay. Churchill is so artful, you know. But he also says that it's where he learned to honor and respect the British people, which is something we should all remember. You know, we we think uh, today, for example, there's just way too much talk that people vote this way or that way because the media makes them do it. But the truth is, that's an insult to the people, too, right? And now, today, heck, you can listen to the Hugh Hewitt Show. You can podcast. You can watch YouTube. You can watch it. You can look yourself. And millions of people do. Let me, let me play for you an ad that the Club for Growth, a fine organization, began playing in Indiana. They are in the list now against Trump. Uh, and they make an appeal to the intelligent voter on this basis, cut number 28. If you don't want Donald Trump to win, your choice comes down to this. 
math. Only Ted Cruz can beat Donald Trump. John Kasich can't do it. The math won't work. A vote for Kasich actually helps Trump by dividing the opposition. It's time to put differences aside. To stop Trump, vote for Cruz. Club for Growth Action is responsible for the content of this advertising. Now, Dr. Larry Aron, John Dickerson, no mean journalist. He knows his stuff. He's a very smart guy. Says appeals to strategic voting simply do not work. I'm not so sure. What do you think? Well, this is a great fight, and passions are high on both sides, and they, they should be. And, uh, and so I think, it, I think that is effective, to tell you the truth. I mean, it, uh, uh, I don't know if it'll work. Trump goes on and on, you know, I mean, he just won big in New York, and, uh, and there's a bunch of states laid out for him now that he's likely to do well in. So he's, uh, you know, he, he but, pe- but people, I must say, I get, do you get a big correspondence about us, about all this? Oh, my goodness. Right yeah. now, as we speak, Jonah Goldberg is driving into his, you know, his cloistered office. He has this vast, expansive office at AEI. It's, it's actually got a throne in it. And Jonah is driving in and listening, and he will be uh, going through the transcript later to see whether or not we have aired. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he thinks I did, and he has a point. So I want to qualify something I said last time. Uh, what I would want to do is add the qualifiers I have generally added, but didn't this time, about Donald Trump's character. One is, I don't know Donald Trump, uh, so I don't really know. Two, Donald Trump is would be the first person elected president at his as his, as his first public service, so of course you got to look, and one should be skeptical, right? If he'd been a senator or a governor, which is the typical way you do it, then he would have a track record. He doesn't have one, and that's amazing, you know, that nobody has got this far from you know, running for his first office. Steve Forbes didn't, Gary Bauer didn't, you know, people I know who did it. And I, all, I always told them that. And the third thing is, of course, there's, I, I am impressed, and it's a fact, with Trump's family and with the testimony of many people who have worked for him, who admire him, and, you know, say he's been a good boss and an honorable man. There's a lot of that. But, of course, there's a lot of the other two, and I should have mentioned that. You know, there's go look at Politico, an article about Trump and Roy Cohn. And, and you know, there's plenty of bad things said about Trump, too. And, and uh, so I add all my caveats, which I didn't on one occasion. I have on others. But uh, also, you know, read that sentence in, in, uh, that fr- in the middle of that par- passage you just read from uh, Election Memories by Churchill. He says, the one phrase is, alas, impugning of personal character. Yes, yes. Well, there's, there's a huge amount of that in politics, and it tells, and one learns something from it, and it's bound to be there. But it's also true that it was the habit of Churchill and Lincoln, for example. It wasn't uniform, but it was the habit of them to turn to the issues and principles that were at stake in the election and dwell on those. At the, at the age of 35, he had participated in 14 elections, he wrote. One has got by now pretty well to know the routine. He also says there's a certain uh, formalism to this uh, and, and that we are to expect certain excesses on every side. But a lot of the anti-Trump people believe he is new and different in American politics in the way that, that Churchill might have greeted 
who was the the fascist in 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 England? Oswald uh, Mosley. Mosley. Now I do not believe Trump is Mosley, but one would. I, I don't know what what Churchill said about Mosley. Do you do you have oh, it yeah. handy? Yeah, yeah. Ch- Churchill, Churchill. You know, Ch- Mosley was arrested <laughs> during the war, but uh, Churchill. Apart from then, you know, prior to Ch- the war. Yeah, prior to the war. But but Churchill was very reluctant to hamper anyone's speech, right? And in, in, I just came across it because we're doing the 19th of the document volumes right now. Churchill pressed in the fall of 1943 to, to get Rule 19B rescinded because there was no longer danger of invasion. And that, involved, uh, that uh, permitted the British government to confine people who had German sympathies, uh, you know, indefinitely. And he got rid of that, and, and there was a fight about it in the parliament, and he said, look, we're not in imminent danger of invasion anymore. Yes, the war is raging, but we've got to remember what we are. And so uh, Churchill did a, a clever thing that historian John Lucas points out, and I believe his interpretation of what Churchill did is correct. Uh, David Lloyd George, the first World War prime minister, an old friend of Churchill's and also often enemy too, had been sympathetic with the Germans, and, and against the war. And in 1940, when things were darkest, Churchill approached him about joining the government. And Lucas, Lucas and you know, Churchill was hardcore for staying in the war at any cost, fight to the death. But Lucas thinks that that was to set Lloyd George up to be prime minister if Britain was, or to be the head of Britain under the Nazis, the way Pétain was in France, if Britain should be conquered and therefore not Mosley, somebody Churchill knew to be a patriot to run the place for, for Hitler. Huh. I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that. The interesting thing also about election memories is that he writes about the 18, 1908 campaign and having to campaign in Manchester, which was the home of the Pankhursts, the redoubtable Mrs. Pankhurst, aided by her daughters, determined upon violent courses. In those days, it was a novelty for a woman to take a vigorous part in politics. Painful scenes were witnessed in the free trade hall when one of the daughters, tragical and, and, and disheveled, was ejected, having thrown the meeting into pandemonium. This was the beginning of a systemic, a systematic interrupt of public speeches and the breaking up and throwing into confusion of all liberal meetings. Indeed, it was the most provoking to anyone who cared about the style and form of his speech to be assailed by the continued calculated shrill interruptions. Just as you were reaching the most moving part of your peroration, the most intricate point in your argument, when things were going well and the audience was gripping a high-poised pitch, uh, high-poised, a uh, a high-pitched voice would ring out. What about the women? What are you going to give the women the vote, and so on? He hated that, obviously, Larry Art. Yeah, he didn't. The paragraph you read earlier, he embraced the controversy, but the but the suffragettes were very effective because they would just scream out something and stop. And so what are you going to do, ignore it? Or are you going to respond? If you respond, you're off your speech. And he says something uh, clever. He says, people who care about making good arguments and the form of them are particularly put off. He means himself. He means himself. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he, the listeners should know that in 1909, uh, Churchill was getting off a train in Bristol, and suffragette Teresa Garnett came up to Churchill and struck him repeatedly with a whip. (laughs) (laughs) And it made big national news. 
Well, and, you know, they played hardball. Uh, oh, man. You know, we're about to get suffragettes on the money in America, and I don't know that the American ones were as mean. <laughs> well, well, Harriet Tubman will be first. She's not a suffragette. She is actually a noble woman. I was telling yeah. someone last night, MSNBC called me up and asked, do you have an opinion on this? I said, I am from the free soil northeast of Ohio, where Hubbard House was the terminus of the Underground Railroad in Ashtabula, where I was taken by my family and I took my children. So I'm very glad to see Harriet Tubman on the currency. I think they were a bit taken aback. We'll talk about that after the break, Dr. Arn. Go nowhere, America. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn to continue the Hillsdale Dialogue. Fifty-one minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt in a Hillsdale dialogue, a first of its kind, bridging two hours. If you are listening somewhere across the United States that loses the Hugh Hewitt show next hour, you lose the second half of the wisdom of Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. But it will be, as all Hillsdale dialogues are, posted at Hugh4Hillsdale.com. All things Hillsdale available at Hillsdale.edu, where you can sign up for the free speech digest, which is monthly, Hillsdale's Imprimus, which you ought to be receiving, and all of the free online courses. But these particular dialogues are available at Hugh4Hillsdale.com. And Jonah, you can check ours out this week. Jonah's listening as we speak, and, and that's very good. I, I love how Jonah will be a guest next week. Dr. Arn, I want to go back to a moment to the currency uh, and Harriet Tubman. Because I was a little bit startled that the uh, producer found it odd that I would support Harriet Tubman being on. They canceled the segment last night when Prince died, and so I didn't go on. And I was ready to tell them about Hubbard House in Ashtabula, Ohio, where all four of my grandparents are. It's a national landmark. It's the terminus of the Underground Railroad where uh, escaping slaves, uh, Harriet Tubman would help people, herself uh, an escaped slave, would help people on the Underground Railroad, made their way to Lake Erie, crossed over to Canada, and were free. And you and I, and your college is a free soil college. It, it is remarkable to me that the left doesn't know that the Republican Party is a is a anti-slavery free soil party. Isn't that crazy? So Hillsdale College has its own storied history, right? Many escaping slaves made their way to Hillsdale and were sheltered there before they went on. And, you know, we are probably we're the only one with the first we can find institution of any kind in America founded on the principle uh, without regard to race, sex, or national origin. And we were big time when, the, when the, one of our founders came to Hillsdale to move the college 30 miles south to get to a big town in 1852. He met in uh, the city hall, and he said, this is going to be an abolitionist college. This is going to be a serious college. This is going to be a Christian college. If you want a college like that, we need you to give us some dough. And Hillsdale ponied up $25,000 on condition that Mr. Dunn, was his name, matched the money. So it was an abolitionist college to the teeth. And, and that's why it became affiliated with Abraham Lincoln in the several ways it was. And, of course, Frederick Douglass spoke on our campus twice. You know what's sad about that? If he'd only gone another 30 miles south, he'd have been in Ohio. Yeah, but it was dangerous down there. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, that, that is to me, everyone assumes that the Republicans are going to be upset that they dumped Jackson, a Democrat, uh, for Harriet Tubman. And we're the free soil people. We're the anti-slavery people. And that's just media ignorance. I yeah, just think I, it's... And I, I agree with you, by the way. They, she's a good choice, right? I mean, mm. she was, a, she was a, a brave woman who did a very great deal of good. And uh, 
that you know so so i don't you know i, I the the objection to it if there is one and there there is one is that our money has been amazingly stable and you know the images on it and all that the british changed theirs from time to time so there's no really great principled objection against the changes except that you know money shouldn't be switching around all the time. Yeah, I don't want them to turn this into a revolving daily thing like stamps. Stamps are that way. Yeah. Uh, but I'm glad for Harriet Tubman. I think it is representative of a, of a particular kind of courage and of a particular era of which we should be proud of that there existed people like Harriet Tubman and people like uh, the, the, the forebearers at Hubbard House and, and Hillsdale College who helped her. Uh, because that is, to me, it's great American history. It proves, I think, that the Declaration never lost its core group of supporters. You know, if you uh, if, if uh, readers want to understand what Harriet Tubman was doing and getting people away from, they should go to our Constitution reader and read one of the entries in it, the Alabama Slave Code. And you'll, you'll find there that the regulations to keep slavery involved everybody in the society. Every free white male, for example, was required to ride posse looking for runaways one night a month. And slaves were forbidden to be off the plantation without a pass or to be inside any building without permission for more than 30 minutes. And so they were, you know, all of them, you know, some of them were worked to death in the fields and some of them were whipped and brutalized and others were treated relatively well but all of them lived under constraints that we would find simply despotic. And the existence of the slave code, because, you know, one of the big arguments back in the day was, this is good for them and they like it. And then the obvious question is, why did they try to get away? Why did they run to Hillsdale? <laughs> why did they seek out the Hubbard House in Ashtabula? Why did they cross the lake in winter when it was icy? I mean, there's all sorts of things to be raised. We come back, the Hillsdale dialogue will continue. We will turn, return to matters... Of the California primary which looms, Dr. Arne is himself a Californian of many years standing before he was ejected and went to Michigan, after he was ejected from Arkansas. He's led an itinerant life. And we're going to talk about the fact that the California primary is going to resemble in many ways a British primary. It's going to be a sprint, a sprint across many different constituencies for a majority of delegates. It is really remarkable And Dr. Arne knows his British politics and his California politics, and we'll talk about it at the start of the next hour in this special edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned. America, it's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening to the Hugh Hewitt Show. And evening grace to those of you listening on podcast and on tape delay across the United States. It's Friday, the last radio hour. That means the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale College are available at hillsdale.edu. All of these dialogues are available dating back now four years at hugh4hillsdale.com. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest, as he is most weeks. Sometimes one of his colleagues or many of his colleagues will join us if we're talking about something in particular. 
This week, Dr. Arndt called my attention to a 1931 essay by Winston Churchill called Election Memories, in which the uh, uh, former prime minister of Great Britain, the prime minister who led us through uh, victory um, in World War II, talks in 1931 about the fact that he had stood for elections uh, many, 14 times by the time he was 35. The British system, Dr. Arne, is concise, and that's what we're coming up to in California. Would you first describe the British system, and then let's talk about the California primary a little bit. Well, the, 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 there are 600-some constituencies in uh, Great Britain, Scotland, in Great Britain, and, and Northern Ireland. And uh, <clears throat> they have general elections. They have to be not longer than every five years. That's a modern rule. Of course, the British Parliament is very old. But uh, they, they can get called whenever the prime minister wants to do it, and the king says yes. And so there are snap elections sometimes, and, and sometimes uh, they get a, uh, the way Margaret Thatcher came to power, for example, was the Labor Party uh, had had a fair majority, but then over time, uh, you know, you're sitting for four years, and of the 600 people in the parliament, some of them retire or get sick or something, and then they have what's called by-elections. They have interim elections in that one district to elect somebody. And if the majority starts losing those elections, its majority can narrow. And then the Callahan labor government that Thatcher beat to come into power was running out of juice. And it was also running out of time. The five years was almost up. And so then they had to call an election, and they're watching the polls like crazy and trying to find just the right moment. And they ran out of good moments. And she thumped them. And, and an election, because you don't know when they are, right? You, they could be this month, they could be next summer, they could be tomorrow. Well, not tomorrow, but there's always a couple of months. And, and uh, so they don't last very long. They, you know, Churchill says each one, he ran, eventually he ran for Parliament 21 times, and he won 16 of them. And that's 21 months of his life that he spent running for office. And uh, he, you described what it was like, you know, and he lived in a very turbulent time, like this time, right? Socialism is being born. Uh, he personally ran six times against a, a uh, Christian socialist by the name of Scrimger, who was also an abolitionist up in Scotland. And the first time, that guy got 30 votes out of 30,000. And the last time, that guy beat him by 10,000. Huh. And so he, he watched all that grow, and he opposed it bitterly, but never bitterly to the place that it stopped him grinning or made him make personal attacks on Mr. Scrimger, whom he admired in a kind of way. Uh, Scrimger was an ascetic and, uh, and uh, you know, lived in poverty amidst the people of Dundee and basically spent a decade visiting every house in Dundee over and over, and that's how he finally beat Winston Churchill, who's way the heck down at the other end of the country in London, being a great man. Uh, he was he was very solicitous of Scrimger in this essay, uh, in a way that was you know you can do from the magnanimity of of his wonderful estate. Uh, but it does sound like a little bit like Bernie Sanders ran against him endlessly. Uh, <laughs> just yeah, except sc- except uh, you know Scrimger was a nice man and. 
there are stories that Bernie Sanders is not. <laughs> now, I want to read to you from this. He, he writes about, I think it's the election of 1900. Nothing like it had been seen before in the memory of mortal man, and nothing like it was seen until 1931. Mr. Balfour had succeeded Lord Salisbury as prime minister at a time when the 20-year reign of conservatism was drawing to its inevitable close. The death of Lord Salisbury ended a definite and recognizable period in English history. Many mistakes were made by the conservatives, many violences done, but nothing done or undone could have saved them from grave defeat. Folly and pride converged this defeat into ruin. In those days, elections took five or six weeks, and they were the worst five or six weeks for the... He's writing basically that there are waves in history, and you can run with them, but you cannot stand when they hit you. Yeah, one of the, you know, one of the basic ideas of Churchill, and you can just follow it through his prudence all his life, is in the end, the people are going to decide. They have a right to decide, and it's not a good idea to do what they don't want you to do. And they will change their mind. And there are some things that you could never do. You'd, you'd be beat rather than, than, than do them. But on the other hand, keep that number to a, as small as possible. And he, you know, what happened, see, Arthur Balfour, who became a very good friend of Churchill, was the son of the fifth Marquess of Salisbury, the last real nobleman. And, you know, the Salisburys are descended from, the, from Lord Burley, who was Queen Elizabeth's first advisor. The first Queen Elizabeth. The first Queen Elizabeth, right. And that's a really grand family. And Salisbury was born into that family, and he became prime minister shortly after Churchill was elected. And he meet Churchill, young backbench Tory, immediately began giving Salisbury, uh, Balfour huge trouble. They later became great friends, and Churchill was wrote a beautiful essay about him that's very worth reading. In now, great contemporaries. Now I bring this all up not only because election memories is wonderful, and I hope it's available at hillsdale.edu. I'm not sure if it is or not, but uh, uh, we can always, I'll I'll tweet out a link to it somehow. But the California primary has never mattered a whit, right? It's just, it's June 7th, elections have always been over. And now it's going to matter quite a lot, because if you do the math, and I've done it repeatedly, if you give, I'm, I'm being very generous to Donald Trump with these numbers. If you give Donald 28 out of 28 Connecticut delegates and 32 out of 38 in Maryland and 16 out of 16 in Delaware and 17 out of 17 in Pennsylvania where most are unbound, 10 out of 19 in Rhode Island. If, if you give him 51 out of 57 in Indiana where Cruz expects to actually win, but I'm being very generous here. I, I won't give him any delegates in Nebraska or South Dakota or Montana because he isn't going to win there. But if you give him 22 out of 34 in West Virginia and 12 out of 28 in Oregon where it's proportional, and, and 24 out of 44 where it's a mixed proportional and by, by congressional district system. If you give him all 51 in New Jersey, that scenario, very generous to Donald Trump, still leaves him 137 votes short of the magic number. There are 171 available in California, Dr. Larry Arn, and this is 53 different constituencies, and it's going to be done in six weeks. It's a lot like an English election. It is, isn't it? And it's a huge state. And, you know, California is more than half the population of Great Britain. So, so that's right. He's got a, it's a huge state. It's the biggest media market in the country, if you think of the whole state as a media market. And, you know, people routinely spend 
more money running for governor or senator in California than 20 years ago anybody spent running for president. Now, there are very few Republicans who matter out here. One of them is Pete Wilson. And you and I have dealings with good old Governor Pete. I I talked to him this week, by the way, because I was at the World War II Museum in New Orleans, which is a magnificent place. It's the American perspective on World War II. So they're in much Churchill there. He's there a little bit, but they're in much Churchill. Have you been down there yet? Oh, I love that place. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, it's really, it's, it's uh, one of the, it's along with the Imperial War Museum in, in London, it's right up there. It's, you know, great war memorials. Well, it is growing and growing and growing. But in any event, Governor Pete was, is on the board there and he actually saved it. They, they're very, uh, uh, very loud in their praise of Governor Wilson because after Katrina, there were some voices that said, we got to shut this down. And he said, no, 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 no. And Wilson, the Marine, showed up and he, he led them through it. Has Pete declared, to your knowledge yet, between Cruz and Trump and Kasich? Uh, not, not to my knowledge. And it matters, of course, as you're suggesting, that he, what he declares. I'm, I'm going to see him in a couple of months, but it'll be too late. That's too bad. Uh, I do, like you, adore him. And he carries a lot of weight. And uh, who knows what he'll do. So, but, but that is not true of Arnold. It's interesting because while you and I had differences on orthodoxy with Governor Pete, and he did me the very unfair thing of appointing me to the Air Quality Management District, which was a horrible thing to do to me, uh, he was never less... worse to do to them, I must say. (laughs) But he was a conservative. Arnold was not. Now, Kasich has got Arnold with him. Do you think Arnold helps in any way? Uh, You know, I've never liked Arnold. Uh, you got to admire the Terminator, the movie. The first one is a really good movie, in my opinion. But, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I, I doubt if that's a name to conjure with. When we come back, I'm going to ask Dr. Larry Arn, who knows California well, how do you win California? And I hope all of the three teams are listening because Arn knows. Stay tuned, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Two minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest as we wrap up this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu. All of these dialogues available at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. We have been talking today primarily about Winston Churchill's essay, Election Memories. And Dr. Arn, of course, a Churchill scholar. His, uh, his new book, Churchill's, Burden, uh, Churchill's Trial, is available at Amazon.com, and we will continue to discuss Churchill throughout the 2016 election. But I want to turn for a moment to this California primary in which we will be involved between now and June 7th. It will be decisive, Dr. Arn. All these other ones matter. There are 15 races left, but the 15th will be in California on June 7th. And, and here we have seven minutes. And you spent how many years in California at the Claremont Institute? Accountant uh, Graduate School, 23. 23. I believe, in, and, and I want to put it on the table for you to talk a little bit about, that nowhere is the state bigger and more onerous. Nowhere are the vested interests more powerful and more moneyed, uh, like the teachers' union and the, and the prison guards. Nowhere has the, uh, the profligacy of government gotten so out of control as in California. How does that shape the Republican electorate, which has been reduced to a shadow of its Reagan self? Well, 
you know, I don't know. The place went to pot when I left. <laughs> but uh, it, it, um, you know, <laughs> it's a very, it's a very liberal state, and it's a blue, deep blue state now. And just think, first of all, what that means. Um, when Ronald Reagan was running for president in '76 and in '80, one of his talking points, one of his advantages, was it was just expected that he could carry California. Right. And think how the map has changed, right? Reagan carried 49 states, and, and uh, everywhere but Minnesota, I think. Yes. And, uh, and nobody thinks anybody's going to do that this year. And, you know, that's part of this phenomenon we have called the blue wall, right, which is that the Democrats start out with 240 or something electoral votes in states that have voted Democratic six consecutive elections. And so... The Republicans have to take all the rest, and California has not been on the table, and not for a long time. And so, you know, it's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, the, you know, one of them that's notorious and often mentioned is immigration, and, and Hispanics vote Democratic. But another one that's not talked about enough is middle-class people moving out of the state. Because, you know, they, they do those U-Haul numbers, you know, which way do U-Haul trailers go? And it's a lot cheaper to rent a U-Haul to go to California than it is to go from California. Yep. And so, so there's, been a, there's been huge changes. And a lot of what used to be the vote that elected Pete Wilson and before him George Duke Majin lives in Arizona and Nevada now and Seattle. And, uh, and so, you know, that, that it's very liberal. And, uh, and there is a Republican minority, and they're intense, I can tell you. Hillsdale College has a lot of imprimus readers in California, and we get a lot of students from California. I think it's third or fourth on our list of places where students come from to Hillsdale College. So they're there, and, uh, you know, they will vote, you know, the, the party faithful. I mean, I think the way it's been break, breaking... But, you know, I, I can't speak with perfect confidence about this because these numbers are complicated and hard to get. But the way it's been breaking so far is that the Republican faithful vote more commonly for Cruz now that the race is narrowed. And independents vote more commonly for Trump. And so Trump is probably going to do what he does, and that is try to appeal broadly, bring new people. I think in the states that voted for so far... There are two where crew, and I'm looking up exit polls, right, and exit polls are not great. So this data is all suspect, but it's what we got. There are two where Cruz has done as well as Trump among independents. Wisconsin is one of them, and I forget the other one. And, and, and the other ones, Trump has done well. So, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very unpredictable. And as you see, and and if it breaks the way it's been breaking, it'll be like that. And Trump might do well. He's, he, I think he's up nine points last time I looked in the state in the in the statewide popularity poll. So it'll break like that. And as you say, it's divided by congressional district. So that's an imponderable. Doctor Larry Arn will be back next week to continue the conversation about how to win in California. This concludes this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. Thank you, Doctor Arn. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned.